Released in 1950, Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon is a unique film in many ways. While it is not unknown for auteurs to write their own films, it is extremely unusual for them to also edit them. But of the 30 films Kurosawa directed, he served as his own editor on over half, which may go some way in explaining his complete mastery of the medium. Yes, it takes a great talent to write a great script, but a screenplay is essentially words in a page, and as such, it is an extension of literature. Which means that when Kurosawa made Throne of Blood, The Lower Depths and The Idiot, he was adapting stories already written by geniuses William Shakespeare, Maxim Gorky and Fyodor Dostoevsky. And yes, it takes a great talent to visualise a story, but a filmic image is really the extension of painting. Kurosawa began as a painter, securing his first exhibition at the age of 18, and so was well capable of composing an image through colour, composition and the suggestion of movement. But what about dialogue? Well, you have the theatre for that. And as for the soundtrack, music has been around a lot longer than film. But editing? The juxtaposition of images that simultaneously construct a cause-and-effect relationship between those juxtapositions, all in order to create a coherent narrative. Editing is the one cinematic discipline that holds no precedent. Other directors who have edited their own films would include Sergei Eisenstein, Joseph von Sternberg, David Lean, David Lynch, the Coen brothers, Steven Soderbergh, Gus Van Sant, Takeshi Takano and Gaspar Noe. Another reason why Rashomon is unique is that it is an adaptation of not just one, but two short stories. Rashomon and In a Grove, both written by Ryanosuke Akadagawa. Akadagawa wrote them in 1914 and 1921 respectively, but he never considered them to be companion pieces. So it came as a bit of a surprise to Kurosawa's colleagues when he decided to mesh the two stories together, with Rashomon serving as the framing device, with In a Grove providing the centrepiece for the drama. That drama is constructed by the mysteries resulting from contradictory testimonies given at the trial of a bandit, charged with robbery, rape and murder. A third reason why Rashomon is so unique is because very rarely has an audience played such a central role in a film. Not unlike Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, Rashomon has different characters offering up conflicting accounts. Find out about Rosebud. Get in touch with everybody that ever knew him. Oh, who knew him well? That manager of his, uh, Bernstein. His second wife. She's still living. Susan Alexander Kane. running a nightclub in Atlantic City. Yeah, that's right. See them all. Get in touch with everybody that ever worked for him. Whoever loved him. Whoever hated his guts. What sets it apart from Kane, though, is the way Kurosawa presents those accounts with the witnesses framed in such a way that they directly address the camera. In other words, their testimonies are delivered to us. We, the audience, are the judge and jury. It is up to us to decide who is telling the truth. And in that way, Kurosawa ensures the editing and imaging become part of the film's overall structure, fabric and ultimate meaning. It is hard to overestimate the film's place in the history of cinema, but perhaps an easy way to measure it is to cite the films that have either remade copied or at least drawn on it for inspiration. Here is The Outrage, a western that repeats Rashomon's plot 
directed by Martin Ritt in 1964. Did you hear what happened a couple of months ago out around Badger Pass? A woman strays away from a wagon bay with her mother and daughter, just a little too far. They were looking for berries. What did they find? Carrasco! <laughs> well, like they say in the melodramas, there they was in his clutches. Now, which one of them do you think got that uh, well-known fate worse than death? The mother? The daughter? The grandma? All three of them. Let's look at Rashomon's camera movement and framing. A lot has already been written about the frequency with which Kurosawa triangulates the figures within his frame. Time and again he composes his shots so that there are three faces within it but never are any of them at the same height or indeed the same distance from the camera. The different eye lines that result create an internal visual tension that reinforces the central tension presented by the dialogue. Who is in control? Who is in conflict for their power? Who is observing? At what point does the power shift? Sometimes that is marked by the actors moving within the frame. Other times it is when Kurosawa cuts to another angle. On other occasions, the power shifts when the camera shifts. But no matter which technique is used, the triangulation provides for a visually robust scheme. Remember, the triangle is the strongest geometric shape, and it plays with the width and height of the frame, as well as fully exploiting the depth of field. That technique figuratively provides the third dimension to the story. Truth, lies and uncertainty. Here is Courage Under Fire, directed by Ed Swick in 1996, centering around a fatal firefight in the Gulf War. They didn't want the truth. They'd already put together their own bullshit version of the story before they ever bothered to talk to me. I just told them what they wanted to hear. We all did. But that's the truth. That's the way it went down, you know? So just, just forget about the medal or leave it as it is. I really don't give a fuck. So nobody from your Huey crew fired an M16 any time during the rescue? That's affirmed, sir. You sure about that? That's affirmative, sir. If we had no... Another way Kurosawa plays with the shifting sands is through the use of light. The framing story takes place in a derelict temple to which three strangers have retreated to take shelter from the torrential rain. So there are dark clouds overhead. This works in stark contrast to the testimonies where the witnesses, all seated outdoors, recall a bright sunny day. But that sunlight is at best dappled, because the events they are recalling took place deep in a forest where the heavy foliage was blocking the light. Very early on in the film, we are treated to the account of Kokori, the woodcutter. Kurosawa and his director of photography, Kazuo Miyagawa, used several tracking shots to show Kokori, played by Takashi Shimura, on his way through the forest. Placed above Kokori on a small ridge, we are looking down on him as we track him in parallel. Another shot places us behind him, so we are following. And then a very striking angle. We are looking through the foliage and fallen trees at Kokori as he walks. The camera tracks from left to right, and as he approaches us, we realise we are on a different trajectory. As Kikori passes, we cross his path. So either the film is directly at odds with Kikori, or his story won't align with the others. Here is Basic, directed by John McTiernan in 2003, which centres around a fatal training mission carried out by US forces in Panama. Good. Good job, both of you. Thanks. Thank you. All right. And we'll get out of here. There's one more thing, sir. Wilmer says Kendall was involved in the drug scam. Captain, I don't want to hear this. 
Well, actually, um, Kendall did try to burn Dunbar with us, so it usually means someone's involved. Captain Osborne, you are not to go near Lieutenant Kendall. That's an order. Understood? Camera movement is a tricky business, and way back in the 1940s, it was no mean achievement to arrange for shifting it from one position to another. Feature film cameras were so heavy and cumbersome, it took quite an effort and no considerable length of time to arrange for it to move. By which I mean eating so much into the production schedule that the director needed to be absolutely certain that there was a very good reason for going to all that trouble. The reasons? The moving camera delivers an extra sensory experience for the audience so that they are figuratively transported through the same space and time occupied by the actors. Also, the movement means that the camera is no longer a mere observer of the events. When it moves, it becomes an active participant. So if the camera is moved at the right time and in the right way, it can become poetic, by which I mean expressive of the film's content. For me, the way Kurosawa used the camera in that single shot of crossing Kokori's path is the equivalent of Sergei Eisenstein putting into practice his five different levels of montage theory. Metric, rhythmic, tonal, overtonal and intellectual. Kurosawa gives his composition, movement, timing, juxtaposition and meaning. Here is Vantage Point, directed by Pete Travis in 2008, which revolves around the assassination of a US president. Ted? Well, there's an issue of when we can go. We go now. You can't give the order. You've been shot. If we go now, we risk telling the world that you weren't really there. We weren't there, Ted. We get the vice president to do it. No, we are not going near the 25th Amendment. Tell Rick to work up a story I was shot, but I'm okay. It's not gonna fly. Damn it, if we have to go to some hospital and put on a show, that's what we're gonna do. We're not sitting this one out. Sir, we have to talk about I'm done talking! Incredulous as it may sound, Rashman went into production on July the 7th, 1950, and then, a mere six weeks later, on August the 25th, it premiered in Tokyo. The reason for such a tight post-production schedule was because of the pressure exerted by the studio Dai. But the sole reason why that schedule was met was because of the stringent and meticulous manner with which Kurosawa had planned and executed his film. He shot precisely only what was needed, anticipating precisely how it would all cut together. Here is David Fincher's Gone Girl from 2014, which charts a dissolving marriage from both spouses' perspectives. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you I'm not sorry. believe me? No, I believe you. It's just the craziest thing I've ever heard. I mean, I love it. For you, it, it sucks, but you... You gotta have a grudging respect for your wife at this point. Right? Are you laughing me out of the building? No, or? are you kidding me? I'm in. I'm way in. You came to the right guy. This is what I do, Nick. This is why I have a $100,000 retainer. I win the unwinnable cases. $100,000. We'll figure something out. I'll give you a special. My wife is skilled in the art of vengeance, right? Okay. So what's the plan? Well, right now, it's a he said, she said. She's telling a better story. No, Nick. She is telling the perfect story. A legend has grown up around the film's initial release and reception. Contrary to popular belief, Rashomon was not altogether dismissed in Japan. Yes, the reviews were lukewarm, their tepid tone resulting mostly from confusion as to the plot. The critics assuming that Kurosawa had botched the storytelling 
as opposed to the fact that it was the critics who weren't really expecting something so groundbreaking or profound. For instance, Talashi Hiijima deemed the film a failure because of its, quote, insufficient plan for visualising the style of the original stories. However, the film didn't bewilder or alienate audiences, and it managed to make a small profit when it was originally released. And finally, to lay the legend of initial rejection to rest, in March 1951, Rashomon won Best Adapted Screenplay at the prestigious Blue Ribbon Awards in Tokyo. But what is not in doubt is the position Rashomon has held in film history. It won the Golden Lion at the 1951 Venice Film Festival and has since been held up as the film that introduced Western audiences to Japanese cinema. More than that, it regularly turns up on the lists compiled every 10 years by the BFI. However, how it managed to wind its way all the way from Tokyo along the Silk Road to Venice is a serendipitous chapter worth discussing. It all comes down to one woman, Giuliana Stramagioli. Born in Rome in 1914, Stramagioli had gone to Japan in 1936 on an exchange programme to study Japanese and the history of Buddhist art. Returning home in 1938, she then went back to Japan on a scholarship, and when the war broke out in Europe, she remained on, serving at the Italian Embassy and then the Italian Cultural Institute. After the war, Stramagioli set up a company, Italia Film, with the aim of introducing Italian cinema to Japan. Having seen Rashman in Tokyo, Stramagioli approached the production company, Dai, with whom Kurosawa had been in a fraught relationship from the very moment he had presented them with the script. Unlike the production company, Stramagioli recognised Rashman's merits, and it was she who encouraged them to submit the film to Venice. They did so, but without informing Kurosawa. And that is how it came to pass that one morning in mid-September 1951, a little over a year after its initial premiere, that Kurosawa awoke to the news that Rashomon had been awarded the Golden Lion. It was the first Japanese film to receive the honour. Is that the truth? I'm sure part of it is. The other part has undoubtedly been embroidered to sound more dramatic. Which is really what Kurosawa believed was the cause for all the confusion about the meaning of his film. Down through the decades, Western audiences have interpreted it in the same way. What is truth? But if that is the case, then the film offers up an intensely bleak view of the human experience. And that bleak view is this. If there is no truth, there are no shared principles upon which we can base our lives. But Kurosawa never intended for the film to ask, what is truth? Instead, he intended it as an examination of ego. None of the stories are lies per se, but rather embellishments to show each witness in the best light. And we're all guilty of that. We want people to think the best of us, so we exaggerate, we arrange events to better ourselves or feign modesty. Which is why the ending offers so much hope. Kokori, the woodcutter, undertakes an act of complete altruism. He offers to take the abandoned child and adopt it as his own. There is no reason for him to do this. He will not receive any material gain. But by offering to care for the infant, he puts someone else before his own ego. The rains have gone and the clouds are parting. The universe is not that dark and cold place we thought it was. We are not as selfish and egocentric as we might fear. There just might be hope for us yet. (laughs) 